Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. What you need on Jobs Day, more Newtonian calculus. We'll do that with Randall Krosner of the Booth School of Chicago, of course, the former Fed governor, one of our great and giant financial economists in America. What's the second derivative of the jobs market look like, Randy? When it moves, does it move? Ah, and that's the, the key question, exactly what you were talking about. What does this portend for the trajectory going forward? Certainly, we're seeing um, a s- slowing pace over the last few months, downward revisions. Um, and then the question is, is, will this be nice and smooth or will this portend something that is going to be, as Lisa mentioned before, nonlinear? Very difficult to predict any, uh, any nonlinear moves and things. But I do think it's, it's consistent with a somewhat um, softening labor market. Um, I think the Fed will certainly be heartened by the, uh, uh, the wage growth uh, coming down a bit of, over time. I think this takes the wind out of the sails of those who wanted to go further. I think it makes it much more likely uh, that we will just hold where we are for a while. Um, but so far, there's nothing in this to suggest that the Fed is going to be eager to cut or be even talking about cutting anytime soon. Do you think, uh, Randy, as some people are pointing to manufacturing as a point of weakness, that that is a leading indicator in the way it has been in previous times, just because of how many people were hired during the peak of the pandemic? It is certainly one area that there was a lot of uh, bounce back because, of course, people wanted things, uh, but now people want uh, services. and, uh, And so the services part is still extremely important. I wouldn't put too much emphasis on any one particular sector. I think you have to look over uh, overall. And as Mike had said, you know, we're seeing uh, a little bit of slowdown uh, broadly, but not enormous amount of slowdown. But I do think this is consistent with, in some sense, where the Fed wants to go. They want to see the unemployment rate go up a little bit, not too much. They want to see wage growth come down a little bit, but not too much. And I think it's just going to be tougher to be hiring people going forward. Until just a few months ago, real wages were uh, were not growing. They were actually um, uh, negative. Real wage growth was negative. Now real wage growth is positive. So that gives less of an incentive for firms to, to mm. hire. Real interest rates are now positive. They had been, been negative for a very long time. That combination is probably going to lead firms to be less eager to hire, less eager to invest. And yeah. I think that's going to be leading to... Uh, what I think is potentially a, a hardish, but not hard landing. This is an important jobs report. This November report of the October data, just absolutely extraordinary. Randy Krosner, thank you so much. Professor Krosner with the Booth School, the University 
of uh, Chicago. If you're not part of the global Wall Street gang, you've got to understand it's hard to look at the Bloomberg screen and frame it out from where we were two weeks ago, which gets us to Keynes. And when the facts change, I change. Jeffrey Rosenberg studied as Maynard Keynes at Carnegie Mellon. He's a BlackRock portfolio manager, systematic multi-strategy fund. For all of us, Jeff Rosenberg, are the facts changing? Great question, Tom. Uh, you know, the, the narrative is changing and the facts are, are driving that. And so Lisa asked the kind of the key question, you know, how do you rally in front of a slowing labor picture? And, and that's because it's, it's, it's where we are. Equity markets were weaker while the economy was strengthening. And that was really about the rise in the denominator and the discount rate and the interest rates. So as you ease off the pressure in terms of the interest rates, there's a little window here where the narrative changes and there's relief because the discount rate is yeah. expected to be a bit lower and you see it in the bond market. But that's about horizon. And so the near-term horizon narrative will shift, but the longer-term horizon <clears throat> about that hardish landing that Randy just mentioned That'll be, you know, for future conversations. Right now, the market's right. pretty excited about lower discount rates. Jeff Rosenberg, people would say BlackRock is part of that wall of money that's out there. Okay, we got a short cover here, a short cover there. I got futures up 18. Rosenberg knows the numbers better than me. Are we underestimating, Jeff Rosenberg, how many people here are off sides and need to get in and play now? Yeah, you know, we talked about this uh, after the FOMC. You know, the near-term volatility is all about technicals and, and positioning. Um, and so you're going to have that and you're going to see those moves. The, the longer-term positioning is going to be about trajectory and, and fundamentals. But certainly, you know, after a, after a report that, you know, pretty much convincingly across the board, as you highlighted earlier, uh, you know, this is a, a report that helps to support the narrative of slowing in the labor markets, slowing in wage inflation, even though that's a mixed shift probably in the AHE number. Uh, but across the board, especially with the revisions, you know, it just looks like this is coming in slower. And so that helps to, to, to feed the near-term narrative that you get to the soft landing. Uh, you know, as Randy said, whether it's soft landing or hardish landing or hard landing will remain to be seen. When do you go with groupthink and when do you push back, right? I mean, when do you go with the crowd if sentiment is shifting and you're seeing people go into risk if you believe that essentially bad news will be bad news for risk assets? Yeah, you know, it's a lot about kind of what's in the looking at what's in the price and, and how much cushion you have against the consensus move and, and where the asymmetries uh, uh, lie. So I, I think right now the, the, the momentum and the sentiment around soft landing is going to be pretty hard to push back against. Uh, but, you know, as we see you know, successive waves of data, we got a, a couple more here in terms of before we get to the uh, December FOMC, there's going to be uh, a, a little bit of momentum here around the easing off of financial conditions, the easing off of tightening from the Fed. Uh, and I, I think that's going to provide a little bit of a tailwind for a short horizon trade. And, and definitely uh, the momentum tends to overshoot. And there is this feeling that this does set the market up for more fragility heading into a print that could be uh, a big surprise on the downside. Jeff, how much is that sort of the play right now is to lean into the momentum, go with the flow, soft landing. Sure, you can celebrate, but the music will stop eventually. And each one of these economic prints are going to have that much more heft and importance in markets. 
Yeah, and you know the, the the main issue here is really about long and variable lags. And Tom, I know you hate whenever every time I say that, uh, but it, it is where do you see that pressure coming in? Randy talked about the pressure in terms of easing off of hiring because real wages are no longer negative; it's more expensive. Uh, you talked about funding costs, and maybe there's a, a little bit of an opening up in terms of the bond market, but. I don't think you, I, I think you got to remember here, uh, these are, are, are much more expensive funding costs. And so right. if you don't have to issue that debt because you've termed it out, you don't want to issue that debt. Uh, and so even though the market may be open, it's at a much higher cost. And that lagged effect of tightening in terms of interest right. expense is something, you know, the market is still going to have to figure out where are the vulnerabilities. And there are vulnerabilities uh, to that impact. On Bloomberg Television and Radio, Jeffrey Rosenberg with us with BlackRock, really timely. And of course, we thank him for his Fed work as well. He's going to stay with us at right now. I can't do a complete data check because Jeff Rosenberg is too important. But Lisa, there's some real nuances here. Futures up 19, continue to advance. Dow futures up 139. Can I get to a VIX of 14? I'm not there yet. 15.26. As Bramble mentioned, folks, a two-year yield in 13 basis points. We continue to see lower yields and higher prices. 10-year in a stunning 11 uh, basis points. And just, you know, outside the box here, I got weaker dollar. I got euros through 107. I've got yen dynamics. But Euro Yen, what does the Japanese institutions do this weekend off what Jeff Rosenberg says? Because I got Euro Yen 160.01. If they're not going to act now, Lisa, when are they going to act? That does raise a good question. And Jeff, to that point, does the uh, move that we're seeing in the U.S., a sigh of relief, open up possible monetary disruption elsewhere? Hint, hint, Bank of Japan that could be disruptive on the other side. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big global story and and one we've been talking about for a while, waiting for. We got a little bit of it uh, in terms of changing the, the definition of yield curve control. And, and there's an expectation that there's going to be more. And there's an incredible amount of fiscal stimulus coming out of uh, Japan that is really going to push the BOJ even further. And, and so that's been a global impact. It's dampening uh, term premium. It's part of the term premium steepening story. <laughs> you know, the refunding, you know, certainly has pushed back on that and positioning, you know, a bit offsides for that surprise, somewhat surprise refunding. Uh, but really the big story there is going to be global term premium steepening. And that's, I think, long term going to come back to the U.S. But near term, this is going to be about softish landing and slowing of the Fed. And, and the market's going to run with that. We're looking right now at two-year yields just tanking. I mean, honestly, this is quite a move. 15 basis points nearly from top to bottom in this trading session as people parse through this. Jeff, just want to finish up with the Fed's reaction function, this concept of what it takes for the Federal Reserve to cut rates. Right now, there is big into the markets in real time, a sense that they will be cutting rates in uh, much sooner than they're saying. Do you think that's accurate, that the bar to cut rates has somehow come in as a result of just the general feeling in the public and the lack of willingness to tolerate much higher unemployment rates? Well, it's it's tricky, Lisa. I mean, I think the re reaction you're getting right now, pricing out the kind of probabilities, the limited probabilities of of the last hike, right? So, you know, you go back to um, Wednesday, and you know, you remember the question, and you know, you talked about we're not even you know talking about uh, cutting rate now. Obviously, the market is mm -hmm. because the market is is looking forward here. 
Uh, I think you got to see a lot more uh, development on the inflation side before you get there. And then the other problem we're going to talk about, I think, is the reflexivity. I think you mentioned it, is that, you know, well, we, you know, the, the Fed could do less because the market's doing more. But the more right. the market does more in terms of easing financial conditions, the more then the Fed has to do. So you kind of get it. yourself chasing your own tail uh, uh, around that story in terms of whether they can cut. So it will come back to, does the inflation really fall fast enough to that 2% level that gets real interest rates high enough that gets them concerned that they're too tight where they really need to deliver those cuts. And that, I think, is still way out into the future. I mean, Lisa, where do you get a show where Jeff Rosenberg channels George Soros on reflexivity? I mean, there's nowhere else in the world you can have this much fun. Jeffrey Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's the way it works, folks. The street only focuses on revenue dynamics. And if they're brave, they go down the income statement and they'll find that. And then it's what I call concept, concept, concept. China, worry, worry, worry. Yep. iPhone, worry, worry. iPads, OMG. <laughs> and thank God, Gene Munster, with all of his work on Apple and technology, says, you know, maybe they're rock solid. Maybe they're running this thing for profit. Gene, I saw a record third quarter gross margin. I saw the persistency of services maintained. And critically, I saw cash generation. In the gloom of Apple this morning, the second guessing, is their free cash flow growth going to ebb? No, <laughs> I, I, Tom, I think it's just gonna flow and flow higher. And ultimately, they showed, as you said, some of the most impressive margins, the most impressive gross margins that they've ever printed. A mixed environment where component costs are rising, uh, labor costs, shipping costs, all of that, and they've been maintaining price. That shows operation yeah. efficiency. That's what drives free cash flow. And uh, you said it uh, right. One uh, big X factor around free cash flow that we've observed with big tech over the last nine months right. is is they all say we're gonna be investing more into AI. Tim Cook talks about that, but says he wants to do it 
responsibly, which right. means he wants to protect margins and do that. That is a unique perspective. John from his house looking down on the Helix in New Jersey emails in <laughs> and says, is it a time to buy Apple? If there's all this worry about legitimate things like China, is Gene Munster saying load the boat? So uh, this is not investment advice, but I do think that this is a time to own Apple. And ultimately is you have to play this picture forward for one, two and five years. And what we've seen in the near term is that the importance of their devices in our lives are central. And that shows up in effectively the guidance, I think it's misunderstood, is for 7% growth up from 1% last quarter. So that's the baseline. The second is just the opportunity that they have to continue to sell that engaged base, more products. And third is that they have opportunities to go into new markets, whether it be spatial computing or what potentially could come out of automotive. And so I think when you put all this together, this is a unique dynamic. And I think that this will uh, power shares higher in the years to come. And Paul, you know this. I mean, you've lived this where you're like, is it a 12-week quarter, a 13-week quarter, <laughs> exactly. a 14-week quarter? I mean, it's like death. Exactly. Hey, Gene, you know, going into the quarter, the pundits were saying, you know, the primary focus is going to be uh, China. So let's approach that from the perspective of competition. Talk to us about the Huawei phone how much of a competitor is that? How much is a concern about nationalism weighing on potentially future demand for Apple products? So the first is the Huawei phone. This picked up a lot of uh, traction during the quarter, a lot of speculation this was going to weigh on the, the China numbers. And China was down 2% year over year. It, that's a similar rate that it was down back in in March uh, when uh, before the, Huawei, the new Huawei phones came out. It was down 7% in December of 20. 22 and so it fluctuates is the bottom line uh, china's up and down and i don't think that the huawei phone is having an impact apple gained share in china in the september quarter and huawei may have gained share too but apple is gaining share and so i think that uh, it is not having an impact on their business and if you look at their china business and uh, look at this on excluding the fx on right. a constant currency basis it was up four percent i'm reluctant to do that because i don't right. want to give but it's worth noting that China's doing okay for Apple. Uh, yep. Paul, quote of the day, Anurag Rana, genius. Apple has 18%, 1-8, 18% of the unit installed base. Mm. And yet you just heard Gene yep. Munster say they're gaining share in they're China. They're gaining share. All right, let's go to the other side of the income statement there, uh, Gene, on the cost side here. I guess, you know, when I look at the, the, the operations of Apple, I just don't see any scenario where they decouple from China. Now they can, I guess, reduce to some extent their dependency on uh, sourcing and manufacturing in China, but they really can't decouple. So how do, how do investors, long-term investors like you get comfortable with that side of the equation? I don't think you do. And I think that I mentioned everything is good in China. I was talking about on the consumer side, I yep. think on the production manufacturing side, it's a different story. And the story is that Apple needs to get out of China and, mm. or at least reduce its exposure. Right now, we estimate that about 40 to 45% of their revenue is manufactured in China. Now it's down from 60% a few years ago. So they've been okay. reducing their exposure there. But the bottom line is that I don't think investors, until that number gets down to 20%, I don't think investors are going to rest easy because this is as a geopolitical element to it and is a, a wild card when it comes to some of the confidence that investors have in the company's ability to produce products to meet this sensational demand. And Gene, 
does a company have a strategy or are they articulating any confidence that they can in fact get down to that 20 or 25% exposure? Uh, they do. It's predominantly India. India okay. is right now about 2% of their production and they talk, they've talked about ramping production there. And so it'll go a lot, to a lot of other areas, even like you probably will see something in Mexico yeah. in the next five years too. Gene, quickly here, services up 16%. It's a persistent vector. Do you have a terminal rate on services or does it just grow out, you know, until Frozen 8 comes out for Disney? I mean, you know, does it just go out forever? It, it's going to keep going out forever because they have pricing leverage. It's not just in what they've raised the pricing with Apple TV Plus, but they raise pricing with the storage. You get those notifications. They raise it a buck a month. You don't think much about it, but that's a 15% increase. And so I think that this business is generally a 10% growing business for this foreseeable future, which yeah. will put three to five years. 10 seconds. Gene Munster, what's your terminal? Some of the parts on Apple right now. Some of the parts. Some of the parts is 240, and uh, I, I think that's based on, as we think about uh, just ultimately uh, what they can earn in 2025. Gene Munster. Not investment so advice, much. but that's where we're at. It's not investment <laughs> advice, but Tucker's got his buy order out right now. Gene Munster, thank you so much, Luke Venture. Let's save the show now, and you can always do that with Anurag Rana. He is truly expert on the cloud and has a partial interest in Apple Computer as well. Anurag, I want you to explain to the audience how a tech company runs their company for profit versus running it just at the top line. To me, Apple is a profit cash-generating juggernaut. Why is that so odd, so strange? Yeah, I think that goes back uh, to the foundation of the company. It really believes in having high margin products. It does not believe in gaining market share. You know, even after all these years, it has only 18% of the unit market share of smartphones around the world. It can completely change that overnight if they drop the price of the phone, but they will never do that because they believe in gross margins more than anything else. Over time, they will gain enough market share in every market, but this is not something that they do is, is try to gain market share just for the sake of it. It's a journey, Anurag, as you know. Before we start talking about lower prices, can we talk about the absence of higher prices? Have they lost pricing power? No, no, I don't think so. The problem over here is people are keeping their phones for a longer period of time. If you were keeping it, let's say, for an average 3.6 years before, you're probably keeping closer to four years. So what that does is it just elongates the, the time it takes for you to refresh your phones or, for that matter, any other product. So I don't think it has nothing to do with the pricing power. The Pro Max is unbelievably expensive compared to the older models, um, and it's doing very well. Clearly, the revenue mix growth shift is moving towards services, Anurag. How does that change your approach to value in this company? Yeah, I mean, it, it has been a true surprise to see that number grow uh, still in double digits. I, I expected that to be back into the high single digits by now. Um, it has a high gross margin. It has a 70% plus gross margin compared to products, which is in the 30s. So over time, when you see the revenue sh mix shift towards services, you can expect the overall company gross margins to trend up inch, you know, inch by inch going up. And, and we have seen that already in the last few years. Anurag, do you think that analysts are overplaying or underplaying the declines that we saw in China? 
I, I think you have to sit down and think what kind of company this is. And I think this is really evident. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've discussed this with Tom and Paul many times that this is not a company that's going to grow sales in double digits. This is at best at this point, you know, mid to high single digit company. And I think people are getting used to that, that fact. Yesterday, when they guided for December quarter, which the estimate was that it's going to grow about 5%, they said about flattish sales, and that's when the stock dropped. I think people need to come to that point that, you know, uh, refresh cycles are going up, and it's going to be a, a, a time before things are going to grow at that same pace. Which then leads to a question of how much growth, how much future growth is baked into the valuation of the company that's seen a 37% rally year to date. Yeah, I think valuation is something that we talk about a lot with investors. And, you know, sometimes you have to really ask yourself, is this a technology company or this is a consumer staples company? Because if you take the hat of a consumer staples company, you know, something like a Coca-Cola or a Costco, then you see things with a very different lens because those companies also are not growing, you know, 8 to 10 percent top line. Anurag, I want to look at something beneath the radar this week. It's a Friday, and in the world of Microsoft, it's a different Friday. It's a co-pilot Friday. What is the importance of this announcement that Microsoft's making where we actually do AI with a modeled, marketed program for global corporate corporations? What does co-pilot mean to Microsoft? So Copilot is, is, is a, basically an AI tool that goes with your original software package. In the case of Microsoft, it's launched that with their Office Suite, which uh, started selling yesterday. That's about $30 per user per month. And they're hoping that, you know, the serious worker in the office, um, that's probably somewhere in the 150 million to uh, 200 million people around the world uh, that currently use the office suite will opt, some portion of that will opt for this particular feature to help gain productivity. Copilot can also be used in writing software. So it is just a tool that everybody has. Uh, they are the first ones to come out with it at, at such aggressive pace. What's your prediction on this? I mean, come on, you've nailed the cloud. You got a cloud view out three years or five years, which is just absolutely remarkable. What is your prediction on how Copilot will, will do? I think in our view, it's going to be very uh, slow and steady because the $30 per user you know, per month is a very steep price. We think you know adoption rate is not going to be more than three to five percent in the first year of it coming out. So you know perhaps a two to three billion dollar upside on that. Um, on the on the uh, software coding side of it, which is GitHub Copilot, we think the adoption rate is going to be very high. You know close to seventy five percent because I don't see any developer out there that can afford to write code without this tool right next to them. Anurag, thank you, sir. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, 
about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In Washington, Terry Haynes joins us now, founder of Pangea Policy. Terry, with great cheer for the exhaustion of our Secretary of State, does shuttle diplomacy for Blinken work like shuttle diplomacy worked for Kissinger? I think it's very different for uh, for a couple of reasons. One of uh, one of which is uh, kind of bubbling under here. Uh, you know, Blinken's mission this time, as opposed to the last few times, is uh, designed to try to get uh, to try to convince the Israeli government of some kind of pause or humanitarian uh, pause, something like that. And it calls into question a couple of things. It calls into question the degree to which the United States continues to support the current Israeli government. Uh, you know, the Biden aides are running around Washington briefing against uh, Netanyahu right now. And secondly, it calls into question whether or not and to what extent the U.S. still supports uh, the Israel's war aims in Gaza. Uh, uh, and that's a concern. Uh, all this uh, also complicates the, Isra- the, Israel- the Israeli aid package because Congress is not going to pass right. an Israel package if they don't clearly understand uh, what administration policy is. So uh, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of problems here that, that complicate Blinken's mission. Yeah, Terry, unfair question, but I got to go there. It is in the zeitgeist into the weekend as well. And you were there with Lord Kitchener and Mark Sykes when they divided up the Middle East after World War One. I. I understand that. All of a sudden, we're talking about a partition of Gaza. We saw a partition of Vietnam, a partition of Korea. Is that the easy way out here, is whatever this word means, a partition of the Gaza Strip? Yeah, there's a partition and, uh, you know, it's kind of international administration are all the phrases that go together. Uh, these are phrases that go back, as you quite uh, quite rightly point out, to uh, post-World War One League of Nations uh, mandate-style uh Governance, and uh, and they tend to bury the uh, the, the harder realities, uh, which are the, the the nature of the terrorist organizations, the nature of their funding, uh, and you know what sorts of proxies they are, uh, and they tend to bury uh, you know kind of kind of uh, regional responsibility uh, for the problem, and all those are going to have to be dealt with, and uh, you know we haven't even started to deal with any of those yet. Terry, what do you make about the uh, strife with in the Republican Party uh, stemming from Senator Tuberville of uh, Alabama, this idea that he will stall with the uh, affirmation, the confirmation of some of the military promotions at a time of expanding conflict overseas. Well, you know, I I give you two points about that. One is that uh, it is obviously... uh, providing some strife within the military. And at the same time, uh, the senator uh, says directly, and to my knowledge, has never been countermanded, uh, that he wants to have a dialogue with the Department of Defense about all this stuff and, uh, and come to some sort of resolution and that he's not got it. 
Uh, what I think is going to end up happening is this gets resolved somehow in the defense uh, spending legislation that comes up by about the end of the year. One way or another, this is going to get dealt with in the next two months. There was a resolution that passed the House offering support to Israel, but also tying it to cuts to the IRS, which some have suggested would actually uh, cause a bigger deficit because it would reduce tax revenues that the U.S. government gets. Does this progress the issue or actually push it back in terms of the debate? Well, two things. One is that the you know only in Washington would the IRS get. Yeah, I'm being rough here. Would get 80 uh, 80 billion more dollars and then have it cut by 14 and have that considered by anybody to be a cut in IRS spending. But you know, but there you are. Um, secondly, I think the funding is uh, the, the how Israel aid is funded is almost beside the point. Uh, the bigger problem that we have right now really is this. You know, you ran Admiral Kirby in your lead in. Admiral Kirby says that the administration has four priorities and they all need to get dealt with together. Well, these are Biden's priorities. These are Biden's foreign policy. Biden's going to have to get all this stuff done and in a way that is funded properly. And uh, right now, uh, whatever else uh, Secretary Blinken's doing, uh, the the apparent change in uh, Biden policy towards Israel is making that more difficult because now Congress doesn't understand exactly what Biden's foreign policy is. Hey, Terry, great to get your input as always. Terry Haynes there of Pangea Policy. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.